0: Thanks for tuning in. Daniel Horowitz was born in New York City and went on to become a famous criminal lawyer practicing in California. He has also been a commentator for many highly publicized trial cases, including Scott Peterson, Michael Jackson, and Anna Nicole Smith. Daniel had written a screenplay based on one of his cases, and was looking for a producer for it when he met Pamela Vitali, a mother with two children. The couple wed in 1994 and she became a powerhouse behind the scenes at his law firm. The couple were married 11 years and were living in a mobile home on a remote hilltop while building their 7,000 square foot dream home in Lafayette, a small town about 45 minutes east of San Francisco Daniel had no idea that he was about to be a victim of a violent crime that would change his life forever. In 1999, Scott Dileski and his mother, Esther Fielding, were invited to live on a property nearby on Hansucker Canyon Road in Lafayette. Residents Fred and Kim were living in a small trailer with their three children while they, too, were building a house. And once it was finished, Scott and Esther became tenants, along with their dog Jazz, who had been with them since Scott was two years old. It was a cozy rural neighborhood where the neighbors formed an association where they looked out for each other. Kim and Fred had a list of everyone's names and addresses posted on the wall in their home. In high school, Scott played on the frisbee team and was one of the captains. His teammates found him to be a fun, caring person, and in art class, he was quiet and focused. Court records revealed that his teacher considered his artwork exceptional and often displayed it in her classroom. Although his drawings of dismembered body parts with blood dripping from them were gory, she did not find them different from any other student's artwork. She estimated that probably 20% of her students produced artwork That was gruesome and violent. In August 2002, Scott's half-sister died in a car accident. Although he hadn't lived with her, they'd seen each other on his visits to his father. With her death, something changed in Scott. He became sad and sullen, began wearing black clothing, painted his nails black, and wore black lipstick. His grades fell to D's and F's, He ended up leaving high school after grade 10 and worked on his GED and had planned to attend college. Scott's artwork and writings descended down an even darker path, perhaps more violent than anyone knew. Court records reveal that his writings were titled Live for the Kill, In Separation, and Lonely. One of his drawings depicted a face with the most stitched clothes with black X's. In another, a male was in a long coat with a knife with the caption, Guns don't kill people, I kill people. And in another, dark figures were drawn, laying down among flowers, with the words, Before Manson, before Bundy, there was Gein, referring to Edward a notorious murderer from the mid-1950s who also robbed graves and stole the bones of strangers and fashioned them into keepsakes for himself. In the summer of 2005, Scott and Robin, who'd become close friends since 8th grade, were spending their school break in the hot sun, discussing a plan to grow marijuana. Scott suggested stealing credit card information and using it to purchase the equipment they would need. They divided up the work. Robin was responsible for finding the equipment online and picking out what they needed. Scott was responsible for stealing the credit card information and ordering it. He made sure to divide up the purchases, smaller amounts on different credit cards to avoid suspicion. Scott began taking walks in the neighborhood, down to the community mailboxes on the Canyon Road, and up into the hills and into the woods. Around the same time, his neighbor John picked up his mail at the mailbox and noticed that the envelope with his credit card statement looked like it had been mutilated. He thought perhaps it had got stuck in a sorting machine and carried on home. John was going to be away for five weeks. Scott managed to get his credit card information, and on September 17th, while John was out of town, He ordered a $267 piece of equipment. Over the next few weeks, he used another neighbor, Karen's credit card, and John's again to place four more orders. For the billing address, he used random names from the neighborhood association list that hung on the wall in his home. And for the delivery address, he used his mother's name, email address, and his home address. In October, Scott's mother discovered one of his disturbing drawings and became concerned. So much so, that she thought Scott might need to see a therapist. Karen was driving down the canyon road to work when she accidentally hit Scott's dog. Jazz was taken to the veterinarian, but sadly was severely injured. Esther was furious and blamed Karen. Scott, oddly, didn't show much emotion over his dog's death. He remained withdrawn, quiet, and sullen. A few weeks later, Karen viewed her credit card statement online and noticed recharges at a store called Specialty Lighting. So knowing that she didn't make the purchases, she sent them an email. The store's owner, Jackie, responded that the orders all had the same delivery address, Scott's address, and Karen wondered if this was retaliation for hitting jazz. The orders had all been placed within minutes of each other and requested next day air shipment, which was very expensive. This made Jackie suspicious, and she suspected fraud. So rather than just take the money and not ask questions, she sent an email to Esther Fielding, the name listed on the order form. She advised that the orders couldn't be processed. And to her surprise, she received a phone call from Scott. And I say surprise because in her experience, fraudsters don't typically pick up the phone. They just disappear. Jackie thought the caller sounded young and was trying to disguise his voice. She didn't want to let on that she thought it was fraud and instead told him that she couldn't ship to an address different than the billing address on the credit card. Scott was polite and replied, Okay, that's fine, and hung up. An hour and a half later, he called Jackie back. This time, he asked for the equipment to be shipped to the billing address, but she advised him that the credit card company had declined the charges and that he would need to contact them. He listened and hung up. He did not call the store again. It was Saturday, October 15th, and Daniel fled his home just before 8 a.m. to attend a meeting. His wife, Pamela, was still sleeping, but soon got up and spent a couple hours at her computer. Scott hiked through the bush and arrived at the front door of Daniel and Pamela's mobile home. Did he knock, or did he ring the bell? We don't know for sure, but what we do know is that she likely opened the door. Scott pulled the balaclava over his head and put on gloves. The door slammed shut, and Scott immediately began attacking Pamela. He beat her about her head, shoulders, and upper torso with a large heavy flashlight and a wooden piece of trim board. At some point, she fell down into a kneeling position. She fought back hard. Her left hand was fractured, exposing the bone. She used her right foot to try and fend him off. Her sock tore and rode up to her ankle, burying her bare foot, leaving a footprint just below the doorknob. She ended up face down on the floor, and with her face buried in the carpet, Scott struck her eleven times on the back of her head and seven times on her left side. He struck her so hard that her scalp split open, exposing the bone. Her nose was broken, and two of her top front teeth were forced out of her jawbone. As Pamela lay dying in a fetal position on the floor, Scott stabbed her. Then he cut a four-inch letter H into her back. Scott was a scrawny 16-year-old, 5 six and 110 pounds, when he took Pamela's life. She died at 52. Back at Fred and Kim's house, it was around 10.45 a.m., she was on the couch grating papers when Scott walked in. She noticed that he seemed to be walking with an exaggerated step, and with a wide smile and a loud voice announced, I had the most beautiful walk this morning. Kim noticed that his hands were shaking a little, and that he had scratches on his cheek and nose that were bleeding. He explained it away, saying that he fell on his walk and got smacked by a bush. Around noon, Scott's mom came home from work and noticed Scott's scratches and that the palm of his hand was red. He told her, too, that it was from a fall on his walk that morning. Wrote the day, Daniel phoned Pamela, but got no answer. Court records indicated that in the late afternoon he left his office ran some errands, worked out at the gym, and went grocery shopping. Pamela had plans that evening to attend the ballet, so when he arrived home around 6 p.m., he was surprised to see her white Mercedes still in the driveway. He grabbed his computer and groceries from the trunk of the car and walked to the front door. It was closed, but not locked. He noticed some smears and opened it. Lying in a large pool of blood was Pamela. He dropped his computer and groceries and fell to his knees. He felt for a pulse. There was none. The Tahoe Daily Tribune reported that neighbors heard his screams as he yelled his wife's name in agony. Then he called 911. At 8 p.m., Scott and Jenna stopped by Robin's house to buy some marijuana. While they were there Scott's mother phoned Jenna's cell phone looking for him. She told him that there was a rumor in the neighborhood that someone had been killed and that police had the roads blocked off and he shouldn't try to get home. Robin and Jenna wondered out loud who might have been killed when Scott offered up that it was probably at the Horowitz house because he was a well-known attorney He commented that he'd seen someone on his walk that morning and wondered if it had been the killer. Then he oddly recited the rhyme, Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 whacks, and commented that shooting someone would be painless, but if you want to inflict pain, you would bludgeon them 36 or 39 times. That night, the crime lab arrived at the home on Canyon Road Near the front door, they found a lid to a plastic storage bin with a bloody shoe print. Blood splatter on the inside of the door indicated that the attack had happened inside. They found numerous bloody finger marks left behind by the attacker's gloves on the walls and on the objects in the room. In the kitchen, they found a mug in the sink, a bowl on the counter, and an opened water bottle, all with blood on them. The next day, the neighbors on the canyon road got together to discuss the murder and the credit card fraud. Near the end of the meeting, Esther lushed out at Karen. She was still angry and felt that she hadn't taken responsibility for killing their dog. Karen responded by saying, You guys are trying to kill me. Esther asked her what she was talking about, and she pulled out the credit card orders from the lighting store. Esther was confused. Her landlord, Fred, stepped in and asked if he could take them with him. Now, Fred was a computer consultant and knew more about computers than most teenagers. He demanded to look at all the computers in his house. Scott had erased his browser history, but Fred was able to find files that showed he'd accessed the lighting website. Fred, Kim, and Esther All confronted Scott. He denied knowing anything and claimed that someone must have broken into the house and used his computer. Esther was worried that Fred would search Scott's room, and if that happened, they might get evicted. So, she told Scott, he had one chance to get rid of anything relating to the credit card fraud. Scott and Jenna went to Renaissance Fair that afternoon. Then returned to Scott's room, where Jenna took a nap. When she woke up, she saw Scott looking around his room. He told her that the neighbors had accused him of credit card fraud and what his mother had instructed him to do. He grabbed a pair of shoes and books and shoved them into a backpack. The titles of the books included Hannibal, Silence of the Lambs, and Black Sunday. A couple days later, Fred again asked Scott about the credit card fraud and pointed out that the use of Pamela's unlisted phone number that he'd gotten from the list on the wall could be used to tie him to her murder. Scott got nervous and started to pace. Fred told him he didn't have anything to worry about because it was very likely that there would be DNA under Pamela's fingernails, maybe even a footprint or hair and that they wouldn't be a match to Scott, right? Scott thought quickly and spun a story of how he ran into Pamela on his walk that morning, and that she had touched his arm with enough force to scratch it, and asked, What if my DNA is there? Fred was stunned, and told Scott not to worry. If you weren't there, then your DNA won't be there. Scott asked again, but what if it is? And Fred replied, well, that would mean you were there and that you were going to do time. Scott began to shake. That afternoon, Jenna drove Scott to see Robin at the high school. Scott told him that he was going to confess to the credit card fraud and say that it was him that used Robin's computer to search for the equipment so that Robin wouldn't be implicated. He told Robin that he was afraid of being linked to Pamela's murder and by confessing to the fraud it would separate him from the murder. Later he returned home and confessed to Fred about the fraud. Fred then called Robin's father and he consented to Fred and Kim visiting his home. Fred searched Robin's computer and confirmed that it had been used for fraud. Robin's father confronted him and demanded he tell him everything. The next day, he got his son a lawyer and contacted police. Robin was granted immunity, and that night, Scott was arrested. It had been four days since the murder. Pamela's autopsy determined that she had been stabbed 39 times and died as a result of blunt force trauma to her head and that she had died within minutes of being struck. Scott's mom went to her sister's house, and Jenna dropped by with Scott's backpack. After she left, Esther opened it up. Inside, she found shirts, pants, shoes, a box of gloves, an external hard drive, loose papers, and a book with dates and credit card numbers and names. She panicked. She looked at the fire burning in the wood stove and knew what she had to do. She threw the papers, gloves, and book into the fire and watched them burn. That same day, investigators were at Scott's house searching his mother's van, which had been abandoned in the yard years earlier and was covered in weeds and plants. His tires were flat and the doors unlocked. Inside was strewn with debris and vegetation. But behind the driver's seat was something that looked out of place. Something that looked new, like it hadn't been there for a long time. It was a duffel bag. Dangling from it was an airline tag with Scott's name. The bag was unzipped and they could see dark clothing laying inside. When crime scene technicians examined it, they found an overcoat, dark sweater, a blue belliclava, and an extra-long black glove. The bag and its contents appeared to have blood stains. In December, Fred's brother David moved into Scott's old room and a month later opened a dresser drawer looking for a pad of paper and found five pieces of loose paper. They were wedged between the top drawer and the dresser frame. He pulled them out and discovered writing. The first four pages contained lists of names, account numbers, access codes, addresses, phone numbers, and online passwords. Neighbor John was on the list. The fifth piece of paper had five bullet points that read Knockout and Kidnap Keep Captive to Confirm PINs, as in Personal Identification Numbers Dirty Work Dispose of Evidence and the last point was to cut up and bury. David turned the sheets of paper over to police. The crime lab conducted DNA testing on the duffel bag and its items. Some of the blood samples were degraded, and both Pamela and Scott's blood couldn't be identified with 100% certainty. The lab, however, did identify Pamela's blood on the duffel bag and glove and both Pamela and Scott's DNA were found on the balaclava. Police had also recovered Scott's backpack from Esther and ran tests on those items. Pamela's blood was discovered on the shoes and the pattern on the bottom of one of those shoes matched the pattern left in blood on the plastic lid found by Pamela's front door. Scott was tried as an adult On August 26, 2006, the jury found Scott guilty of first-degree murder and residential burglary and sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In 2018, Senate Bill 394 was passed that gave juveniles tried as adults a chance for eventual freedom. Scott's sentence was reduced from life to 25 years. He could be out in 2030. He still maintains his innocence. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Bruce MacArthur, a serial killer. For seven years he hid in plain sight, preying on the vulnerable. No one suspected the gardener. The number of missing men continued to climb until a photo of a van led to his arrest and the details shocked a country. If you are dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at dot 20com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects and Fasting studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe. Sleep with the lights on and don't blow strangers.